Welcome to Master the Pause with Marion Moss. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Welcome to Master the Pause. I'm your host, Marion Moss. The way to expand your consciousness is through the control of your inhalation and exhalation. In these podcasts, my guests use breath consciousness as a way to work with their own health or with clients and patients. This, the experiences of the use of the breath are broad and life-changing. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephen Parker, whom uh, we call Stoma. Namaste, Doctor of Psychology in Private Practice in St. Paul, Minnesota, since 1985, until his recent retirement. He also serves as adjunct assistant school professor of counseling and psychological services at St. Mary's University of Minnesota and adjunct assistant professor in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 2004, he helped originate and teach the first course on yoga in an American medical school at the University of Minnesota Academic Medical Center. He teaches the faculty, he teaches on the, on the faculty of the introductory workshops of Minnesota Society of Clinical Hypnosis. In addition to authoring journal articles and book chapters, Dr. Parker edited volume two of Swami Veda's definitive scholarly work on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Parallel to his psychology career, he became a yogi in, Him- in the Himalayan tradition. There he was initiated by Swami Veda Bharati, taught yoga and philosophy, and studied Sanskrit and Southeast Asian languages for his BA at the University of Minnesota. His current interest is neuroscience, and he is the author of Clearing the Path, the Yoga Way to a Clear and Pleasant Mind, Patanjali, Neuroscience, and Emotion. He has been a peer review editor for the Journal of Men's Studies, the American Journal of Orthopsychiatry, the International Journal of Health and Applied Sciences, the International Journal of Yoga Therapy and Yoga Mimamsa. Stoma, as he's known by his initiate name, travels to continents far and wide to teach the art of meditation, as taught by his masters, Swami Rama and Swami Bharati, whom whom we share. We share Swami Veda dearly. Welcome, Stoma. Thank you so much for being here. Namaste. Appreciate your time and effort. It's lovely to be back. Oh, so sweet to have you. Um, I would love to know more about your life and what brought you to this profound uh, way, way of teaching and your process along the way and what uh, milestones you had along the way to help our, our listeners understand what a spiritual journey can be like. Sure. I think uh the simple answer to the question you put about how I come to be whatever I am now in yoga is my guru's love. Um, I used to be 
as I was growing up a pretty spiritual kid in many respects. Um, for a kid raised in arid American prairie Protestantism, um, I had some odd characteristics, <laughs> um, particularly an attraction to uh, higher church rituals in the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure my parents wondered what was going on with that boy for quite a while. We um, moved to uh, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul when I was 12 years old. And at that time, it felt to me as though some inexplicable life current was carrying me along, that there was some purpose to my being uprooted and replanted, um, even though I couldn't quite figure out what it was at that moment. When I came to Minnesota, I entered uh, middle school, started my middle school years here. And during that time, when we read about um, about other countries, and I, I've always been the pers a person who is interested in the most different person in the room. So I've always had a lot of curiosity about other people and other cultures. And this question came up in my mind about uh, meditation and about the spiritual cultures of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. And so I always thought to myself at that time, you know, this is something you want to learn about later on. So fast forward uh, three or four years to the end of high school, and I came back to my high school uh, to help out with coaching a debate team there to make some money. And the debate coach happened to be an important mentor to me uh, at that point in my life. Um, and interestingly, since then, he's become a major teacher of uh, Christian centering meditation um, in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and uh, so I, I thought that was sort of an interesting outcome. Yeah. <laughs> One day, that teacher came to me in 1970 and said, uh, he was the leader of the team that taught a humanities course that always brought in speakers. So he said, um, we're having a speaker this afternoon, a Hindu priest who's going to talk about yoga and meditation. I thought you might be interested. So immediately that little bell went off in my head that this was the time to learn something more. So I attended that lecture, which was given by Pandit Ushar Arya, who later became oh. Swami Veda Bharati. He was a professor of South Asian studies at the University of Minnesota at the time and was just beginning to teach some classes of his own on uh, yoga and, and meditation, yoga from a meditative point of view. And so I signed up for those classes. And, uh, you know, as I said to my mentor when I contacted him a few months ago, the rest is history. <laughs> that introduction that he made as small a thing as it may seem to be, changed absolutely everything about my life um, and really created the direction that my life has taken since then. I mean, even though in many ways I have done many other conventional things, you know, went to college, got a BA, got my graduate degrees, worked out a profession for myself, all of that. Um, but I think it's typical of the Indian notion of uh, ashramas in life, of phases of developmental phases that we go through. The way the Hindu tradition looks at it is in four 
25-year quartiles. A human life is divided into four portions. The first part as a student, second part as a married person, you know, creating children, creating the economic basis for society. The third part, you retire from that and uh, you do practices to prepare for the fourth part, which is renunciation and uh, becoming basically a monk at the end of your life. So that as you go through your life, you sort of fulfill all your responsibilities along the way. And once that stuff is taken care of, then you are free to choose where you want to go in life. It frees you up to make choices um, about your spirituality. Um, and so uh, I was very active in the early days with the organization that Swami Veda founded here in Minneapolis, the Meditation Center. Uh, did teaching for them, lived in a residential ashram for a year. Actually became Swami Veda's student at the university and studied uh, South Asian languages and literature for my, my baccalaureate degree. Was that the Sanskrit classes that you? Yeah, talking? for which for which I'm endlessly grateful. I mean, I had oh. I had seemed like a good idea at the time, but I had no idea what I was actually getting in the process, mm. which was, in addition to excellent academic education and scholarship in these languages and this text tradition, um, uh, it was also getting quite a bit of the the traditional inside of the tradition that comes from. Mm the experiential tradition of the yogis through Swami Veda and through his master, Swami Rama, mm. was often here in Minneapolis in those days. Um, after a few years, I sort of got off doing what we all do in our 20s, you know, sorting ourselves out in life, figuring out, you know, what kind of profession we're going to do and, you know, coming to terms with ourselves and relationships and all of that. And that, that took a few years. Um, that sort of concluded around the time that I finished my doctoral studies. And at that point, uh, I knew that Swami Veda and Swami Rama were both quite ill. Uh, and it was unclear whether either of them would survive. And so I thought, well, I should go to India and pay my debts to these guys. Very important influences in my life. At, even at that time, I had no idea how important so I called Swami Veda up, actually, on the day that I was, I was just leaving the house to go to my commencement ceremony for my doctoral degree. I called Swami Veda and I said, we're coming in one year. Um, he was very happy to hear that um, and was very welcoming about uh, letting him know what our plans were when we made them. Now, this kind of a trip is sort of expensive. We sat down and did a budget. It was going to be 10 grand. 10,000 bucks. And I didn't have 10,000 bucks, you know, after a doctoral program. Uh, uh, and so I was worried about where the money was going to come from, you know, were we just going to run up our credit cards or what? And about a week after I made that telephone call, I came into the office one day and a woman came in that I had seen for quite some time Personally, she was very poor, and I saw her at a very low discounted rate. She came from a wealthy family, however. And that morning, she came in and she said, you know, I've received an inheritance from someone in my family, and I would like to go back and pay you the full fee for all of the sessions that we have had. Wow. 
So we sat down and calculated all that out from the records that I had. It was $10,000. I love it. I love it. He writes me a check for $10,000. <laughs> and this is uh, that's brilliant. Actually, in 1974, uh, Swami Rama took a group of students to the Kumbh Mela in Hardwar. This was at a time before tourism was really a thing in India. And it was yeah. not it was not easy to be a tourist in India. And I wanted so badly to go on that trip. And I was even poorer then. So about a week before the registrations for that trip closed, my mother called me one day and she said, you know, your grandmother has given us some money and we want to give each of you kids a thousand dollars. Well, the fee for the trip was one thousand dollars. So in both times. Let's money, see. Uh, your path was pre preordained already. Well, I mean, I think it's an example of when you are following your dharma, when you're following the things that you were put in this life to do, mm -hmm. life makes a way for you. Yeah, that's my experience too. Well, yeah. And and I have I have so many experiences and I've heard so many more stories about this sort of thing happening with people. Yeah. So off to India we went. Um, I had not at that point seen Swami Veda or Swami Rama for about five years. Um, mm -hmm. and I had that was no, a big chunk of time. Right. And I had, mm -hmm. I, I had no idea how it was going to be. Among well, other things, I was partnered with a same-sex partner by that time. I didn't know how they were going to respond. Oh, to the yes. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I had no idea how well my partner would take to traveling in India. So we had a whole plan for what was going to happen if he didn't like the ashram he loved the ashram it was that's great yeah experience so all kinds of things happened and and typical of you know people who come visiting that way you know sooner or later swami veda would ask them uh, oh could you help me out with a little job oh i know that <laughs> <laughs> you he type you need some help <laughs> right yeah that's exactly what he said he said you you type <laughs> and uh, can you use a computer? Mm -hmm. So um, we sat down and he helped, He asked me to help type up some of the pages for volume two of his translation and commentary of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Well, that was the start of what turned out to be a half-time job for five years. Whoa. Um, <laughs> it just, as always with those projects, just got all out of hand. Um Many other very interesting things happened while I was there. I was reinitiated, given some new practice. Um, and in the process of that, uh, that new initiation, uh, I was given a glimpse of the relationship that I had with these people beyond this life. And I had always felt when I came to Haridwar in Rishikesh that this was my home that this river is my mother. Wow. And, it, you know, back in 1974, I thought, well, you know, you're a Sanskrit student. Here you are in India. Of course, you're going to feel this way. Five times stronger when I came back 22 years later. Amazing. And that was the moment after, you know, 25 years, really, of, of being in this tradition. Yeah. That's the moment when I stepped over the line from being a student to being a disciple. Mm. Because when I felt how much that force of consciousness that we call guru 
had followed in followed me in my life. Mm-hmm. When your heart is touched by that kind of love, there is no turning back. You cannot turn away from it. And um, and at that point, I began to help out with uh, the work that Swami Veda was doing more and more. I would help him with workshops. I would help him when I came to the ashram in India. After a while, I spent some time traveling with him as a personal secretary. Um, And eventually I ended up traveling on my own, teaching in our communities around many places in the world and in particular, helping to support our teacher training programs. We have teacher training programs in many countries. We, We do them here in in uh, North America, but we also have programs established in Italy, Hungary, Korea, um, Taiwan, and, uh, and uh, Thailand have a joint teacher training program. And so these keep us pretty busy. And, and one of the things that you've uh, been doing for quite some time, too, is giving initiations. If you want to explain that to our listeners so that they have an, an idea what that means. In 2000, well, in our tradition of yoga, you can, you know, you can practice meditation on your own and you can get pretty far with that without any special anything, Mm -hmm. really. Some people decide that they want to actually be, have a subtle mental link with the tradition. And so they ask for a mantra initiation or, or, what in Sanskrit is called mantra diksha. In that process of mantra diksha, it's not just a matter of your being given some words to use in your meditation. You sit before a preceptor and you go into a meditation together and through the preceptor, the guru force comes into you and leaves a drop of its own energy in your mind. So the mantra that you're given has a quantum of energy in it that comes from the guru. This is, and this is what is meant by the term an awakened mantra. Mm-hmm. The mantra is awakened by the shakti of the guru. Um, and by the guru, I don't mean a person. I mean, like I said, that, that energy that moves a, through. A special force. A person, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, And then what that does is it allows the mantra to have, to have its own energy in your mind. So if you get into a point in life where you're not paying much attention to your practice and, you know, we all have these rebellious moments when we just can't do it. And what that does is to give the mantra a way to sort of come up in your thoughts, Mm. to get your attention and to, to help you to, practice a little bit, even when you're not doing much intentionally. That's a wonderful description. I'm, I'm just uh, realizing the many times my mantra just appeared out of nowhere. Right. It's a way that the That's, guru has of giving you, giving you a little push. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always thought, um, boy, that would be a wonderful thing to be able to do for people. Oh. Um, I, uh, began teaching Hatha Yoga in 1974 and have taught various aspects of yoga since then. Um, In 1999, I was traveling with Swami Veda in South Africa 
and we were walking one evening, uh, just he and I. And I said to him, you know, Swamiji, I've been thinking about this and someday, somehow, if there's some way I could learn to give people initiations, that would, that would be the greatest gift. And he, he looked at me like I had just said something horribly profane. <laughs> and I realized I should not bring this up again. Uh, He's the one who brings it up. Right? Look, I was getting his, his way of training people is to watch them for years, mm. decades in some cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He really does watch. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons he used to bring people in to work with him is he wanted to, he wanted to see them more, more clearly and in more depth. So nothing, nothing came of that for a long, long time. In 2006, our teaching team was in Korea with Swami Veda. This included Swami Ritawan, myself, Ashutosh Sharma, and uh, Margot uh, Belog. And Swamiji gathered us in a room um, one night and he said, I would like you all to set aside the first three months of 2008, January, February, March, come to the ashram to do a 90-day silent retreat. I want to train you to do initiations. I remember those days. And I thought, oh my God. Here it is. I was just absolutely (laughs) dumbfounded um, that he had said this after the look that he gave me some years before. (laughs) before. Um, So we came and we did our our three-month silent retreat and it was a very interesting process. I mean, we could do I'm sure we could do several podcasts just on those kinds of lengthy mm-hmm. Love to. It was, it was a very deep experience. And at the end of it, uh, and there were no guarantees. We had a lot of study we had to do beforehand in terms of reading. So we got ourselves up to speed because mantra in yoga is a very detailed science. I mean, there's a lot to it. And there's also a lot to learn experientially. And we did some of that in, in the process of the retreat. And then at the end, we did a meditation together where Swamiji used some of his abilities to allow Swami Rama to come into the room. And Swami Rama took a look at everybody and gave his word about whether they should do initiations or not, thumbs up or thumbs down. You know, some people, he said, fine, go ahead. Some people, he said, keep practicing for a few months and others he said you know wait and 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 come back to this in a couple of years mm-hmm. not very many though for the most part uh everybody began doing initiate most of the vast majority of us began initiating after a few months there were some other people besides those four as well who were involved in this um and so i began to do mantra initiations with people and i have to say it has been it has been a very interesting experience to watch some of the things that happen and I it's such a wonderful experiential lesson in how the gifts and the advanced practices of yoga come as gifts of grace and I mean gifts they come through you but they're not yours I don't do mantra initiations my guru does mantra initiations And my guru sees fit 
to sit in my mind sometimes to do that and to use my mouth. How do I know this is true? Well, once in Hungary, in Hungary, we have many, many students. And every time we went, we had to do so many initiations. I would often do 17 in one day, uh, like eight in the morning till five in the afternoon. And uh, this particular day, we were doing that many initiations. And uh, we got to the end of the day and I gave the same mantra to the last two people. And, you know, I was always quite concerned about making sure that I gave the right mantra. We have to be, the, the process is entirely intuitive. We wait to hear the mantra that's given to us by the guru to transmit to the student. Um, and so I'm always, you know, I know just enough about Sanskrit to be dangerous <laughs> and to have my own ideas about what somebody should get. And I want to make sure that I'm imparting just what the guru wants to give them. Mm -hmm. So I got to worrying about this, as many people do. Uh, when Swami Rama was in the body, Swami Veda used to worry about this. And the minute he would begin to worry, the phone would ring and Swami Rama was on the other phone. You think you give the mantras? I give the mantras. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and what he did with me was stories. <laughs> um, I, I sat and worried about this for a couple of weeks. We went off and did our summer retreat in Hungary. And at the end of the retreat, as we were kind of mingling and saying goodbye, this lady came up to me and she said, you initiated my daughter two weeks ago. She was the last person you saw. So immediately my ears are alert. She said, my daughter wanted me to tell you the following story. The night before she came for her initiation, she was so excited she could hardly sleep. When she did manage to sleep, she had a dream. And in that dream, you gave her the same mantra you gave her later that morning. Now, that's a, a beautiful story for the student. But it's also my guru saying to me, you don't give the mantras. I give the mantras. Stop your worrying. Ah, uh -huh, uh -huh. And there have been several other instances like that um, where I got a message about the fact that it was, in fact, the correct mantra. Um, and so I don't worry about it anymore. Um, I think I'm finally past that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it was, it's, it's a wonderful example. And even for Swami Rama, somebody who was capable of doing things outside the laws of physics. He also understood that those things were not his. They were not coming from him, and he never thought so. They came through him. And whenever somebody talked like he was doing those things, he would begin to, to say, for example, uh, I do nothing, my master does everything. You know, suddenly he would become a five-year-old boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the attitude a genuine guru will take. Because the moment that they try to hang on to the, those things personally, the connection is cut. And then there's no value. Yeah, in, lineage has no patience with that kind of evil yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and the value of, of a mantra? Uh, you know, uh, the value of a mantra is 
that the mantra was originally seen in Samadhi by some yogi called a rishi or a seer. Every mantra has a seer. And it was an experience in meditation. That experience eventually worked its way through the levels of that person's mind until it became language. So in the initiation, you're given the language and you're given a subtle energetic link to that experience. So the mantra in the midst of your own mind gradually leads you deeper and deeper in the process of repetition of the mantra into those deeper layers of the mind, mm -hmm. leading you back to the original experience. It's as though the Rishi has left a trail of crumbs for you to follow going deeper and deeper in your mind. Wow. Um, once you have this, and um, I'm just thinking, I'm making the correlation between psychology, being a, being a, a, a patient to a psychologist, and having my mantra, and noticing that the things I'm talking about, I go deeper, and I have experiences, I feel like I would just be unfolding in major ways. Have you witnessed that over time with people yourself? That uh, sure. their, their mantras have given them? There's uh, one guy, one guy I can think of. Yeah. Um, and this, this person had a reputation for being very exploitative and very narcissistic, mm. very self I mean, kind of a Trump-like guy. People didn't like him. Women in particular didn't like him because he was mostly out to get whatever he wanted, and that was that. Mm -hmm. He didn't have much room for anybody else's heart. Um, and he was you know, kind of a lonely guy. He, was, he ended up being a therapy client of mine for some years. And I had him work with a certain, a certain mantra uh, long-term, um, a so-called special mantra. And this ended up really transforming his personality. I mean, it was really something to watch this. He had a very severe autoimmune disease. And I don't know how much your audience understands. This isn't a disease where your immune system begins to attack your body. And this one is a, was a very serious one, uh, ulcerative colitis which can be fatal. And in his case, it was, he was always on the edge of death. Um, and after several years of the intensive practice of this mantra, his colitis, it didn't go completely into remission, but he didn't have any major problems with it either. Um, and his personality really did change. Hmm. He began to take other people's thoughts and feelings into account. He began to develop a sense of compassion. Mm -hmm. um, and these are the things to look for when you're thinking about, am I making progress in meditation? You know, so mm -hmm. often when people are wondering if they're making any progress, they start measuring stuff. How long can I sit in meditation? How long can I hold my breath? How long can I hold this posture, that posture? You know, how many advanced postures can I do? None of that means anything. What counts? as Swami Veda used to say, is are your relationships better? Are yeah. you a more lovable and loving person? And I remember him saying, uh, you can measure how 
how much of your spiritual uh, spiritual progress you're making by how much anger you ha- still have. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And eventually, I, I use that measure a lot. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, and 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 somebody who is making some real progress with this, you you don't see them angry. Yeah. You know, uh, Swami Veda talks about being a very angry young man early in his life. Mm-hmm. Something that he worked on in his personality very hard for decades. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with him at the end of his life. And at that point, you could not make him angry. People tried hard. I mean, mm-hmm. people did some really crazy mean stuff. And stuff that would make smoke come out of my ears. (laughs) And he would always greet everything with this loving heart, you know, from a point of understanding. He had an initiate of his who happened to be a therapy client of mine who had a very major mental illness. And this woman would send him when she was in the midst of her mental illness, she would send him these awful emails accusing him of all kinds of profane stuff and of course she would have the decency to copy me on these emails so i'm sitting there reading them and smoke coming out of my ears i'm so mad you know Mm. i watch him respond with this calm understanding Mm. Mm. of where this was coming from in her it taught me Mm. so much about Mm. patient with people he really understood the human those those qualities are the ones that to look for in terms of spiritual progress. They're described in Sutra 33 of chapter one of the Yoga Sutras. They're called Brahma Viharas. Friendliness, Maitri, or the Buddhist term is Metta. Compassion, Karuna. Uh, Joyful mindedness, Mudita. You, You get a happy mind as your mind gets clarified and purified. You get happy. And not, you know, happy in a, pleasure sense but happy in a joyful sense those two things are quite different mm-hmm. and upeksha or in pali upeka in the buddhist tradition meaning literally overlooking what it really refers to as being emotionally non-reactive mm. you don't you emotions are very stable and nobody right. can knock you off balance right. nobody <laughs> nobody could do that to swami veda hard as they would try I think this would be a really good time to, um, if we could ask you to take us through uh, a meditation or a breathing practice or something that you feel like you want to share with us sure. to bring us to possibly a state as close as possible to that. You know, it's really simple. Yeah. And I'm going to ask our listeners to, if they're uh, driving, and if they're on uh, uh, any equipment, the dangerous equipment, to please uh, put a pause on and come back and join us later. And if you're ready to join us now, please uh, follow Stoma's instructions, and we'll see you on the other side. Just feel your body inside. Feel the space your body occupies inside your skin. Bring your mind back from all other time. 
feel the flow and the touch of breath in your nostrils here and now. Just watch, just feel. And as you watch, notice how your breath begins to change. Becoming a little smoother, longer, deeper. Just allow those natural changes to continue. And you may also notice your body letting go. As you feel inside points of tightness, you can notice how the muscles just let go. This way, let your mind and body settle. Feel inside the top of your head and your forehead. As those muscles release and relax, feel around your eyes and eyebrows. down into your cheeks and the corners of your mouth. Your jaw. Relax the muscles in your neck. And from your throat center, feel into your shoulders. Down your upper arms. your upper arms and feel down inside your forearms. Feel down inside your hands. 
your fingers, fingertips. Breathe as if the breath is flowing between the crown of your head and your fingertips. Relax your fingertips and feel back inside your fingers. Back into your hands. Your forearms. Your upper arms. And your shoulders. Relax your throat center and feel down inside your chest. Release your upper chest and upper back. Let your ribcage go. in the center of your chest. Exhaling and inhaling from your heart center. Feel down into your navel area. your hip joints, relax your gluteal muscles, your thighs, your calves and lower legs. Relax your lower legs and calf muscles. Your feet. and your toes. Mm -hmm. 
So you feel the whole body at peace. Whole body still. Whole body breathing. Feel that flow between your navel and your nostrils. And as you sit by this quiet flowing stream of breath and mind, just listen If you have a mantra, listen for the sound of your mantra. Or you can use your favorite divine name with the phrase, so hum, I am that. Hum with the exhaling breath, so with the inhaling. Feel that gentle song. Draw your mind more and more still. Not really doing the mantra, but just listening to it. find that song going beyond the words and into a feeling follow it and follow just the vibration
You may find that vibration leading you towards a silent space. Just rest there. silence. Let that vibration again emerge with a feeling of openness, loving kindness. You may even use the Buddhist metta contemplations. May I be at peace. May I be healthy and safe. May I be full of joy. you can gradually extend those wishes outwards towards other beings. At first, people you love. Then maybe people by whom you are challenged. Perhaps even eventually, with a loving heart, towards those you have considered to be adversaries in life. You can let your mind turn gently outwards. Feel again the solidity of your body. Let your palms come before your face. Let your eyes gently open. 
of your mind. Fill your palms with the fragrant blossom of gratitude that you can offer for the welfare of all beings. Gratitude to the great light that is the guru who comes to us moment by moment with every breath we take. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Shanti. Om Shanti. Hmm, wonder if I can uh, bring my voice up to podcast. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much. Um, I truly felt a um, the energy of the guru there. There was a distinct place that we shared. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I would like, I'm sorry. For, for what it's worth, in the midst of my frantic preparations for Memorial Day weekend. Yes. I feel better also. Oh, <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Sweet. That's right. That's right. Sweet. Well, I won't keep you much longer. I just want to let people know that they can rewind and replay every day this wonderful meditation is such a lovely gift for us and we're eternally grateful for that. And, you know, Marianne, I, I think for people who find themselves struggling a lot with anger, yeah, this um, kind of meta contemplation at the end of the meditation can be a very, we know actually from studies of neuroscientific studies of meditators brains, that this practice helps people to establish an inner attitude of loving kindness and gradually begins to pacify some of that anger and rage that people carry. Oh, yeah. So this is, this is something that you can do on your own. Very, very to useful. Counteract that. Very useful. Yeah. So take note of that. And I'm taking note of that. And as we uh, approach the summer of, uh, 2021, perhaps we'll need this more than once a day. It'll be very good. Thank you. Thank you again. And I'm going to let you get on with your weekend. I'm just going to let our listeners know um, that this is Master the Pause. Uh, I'm myself as Marion Moss, and we thank Dr. Stephen Stoma Parker for joining us today. And uh, please subscribe to masterthepause.com and stay inspired as you too find your breath. Two times a month, you'll be notified of new inspirations with my guests. And to get notifications, use the subscribe button. Please leave your comments and ratings on the podcast and let us know what you enjoyed the most. Your feedback is most welcome. Thank you for joining us today. All the best for your peace of mind. Blessings. This is Marion Moss at Master the Pause. <laughs>